And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. In his medical school journey, Christopher McGee received unfortunate news regarding the health condition of his grandmother. This firsthand experience exposed the intricate challenges in hospital care logistic, revealing significant gaps between healthcare services and patient comfort. Despite the exceptional care offered in hospital, Chris observed a recurring pattern, unnecessary hospital admissions for issues that could be managed at home intensifying the emotional, social, and familiar strain on patients. To address this disparity, Chris leveraged his expertise in computer science and medicine to co-found Current Health. This company is dedicated to enhancing healthcare quality by utilizing wearable health monitors, aiming to bring professional medical care directly to people's home. In this episode, Chris shared insights into his journey of developing wearable technologies that reduce clinical visits and enhance the home care experience for patients. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for the invite, Christine. Lovely to be here. And um, so I'm glad to see that you make the move to the U.S. Yeah, it's been a, a long time coming. We moved in January of last year to Boston and love it here. Yeah, um, that's that's good. More uh, smart people in the in the country, I think, is always a good thing. So, first off, also congratulations! You have a good success uh, exit with yeah. the company now that you're part of larger organization. But before we dive in there, uh, if you can share with us a little bit about your background and is uh, current health your first rodeo, and what drives you to start this company, and is there particular moment or person that inspired you to do what you did? Yeah. So um, I'm originally from the west coast of Scotland, a little post-industrial town called Paisley. Uh, went to college, went to school to do computer science, um, had always loved technology and building things from a young age. Um, but at that point, most people in my um, year at college would go to work for an investment bank. That was the career trajectory for most software engineers at that point. And I really didn't fancy that. That wasn't something for me. So I ended up going to medical school, actually. I thought I'm going to go become a physician and moved about an hour north of Edinburgh. Uh, started training to be a physician and loved it. I absolutely loved um, medical training. I loved everything about it. It was just amazing. Met my now fiance there. Um, and loved it, but I had always had this idea of one day starting a company, not necessarily when I was in medical school, but in my third year, my grandmother got sick. She was like many patients that are cared for in our health service today. She had dementia and COPD and heart failure and poor mobility and poor eyesight. And she kept getting in, admitted to hospital for things that I thought could and should have been managed at home. And admitting a, a um, older lady with dementia to the floor of a hospital is extremely traumatic for her and for the family. But I think being a little bit inside the health system at that point, you see why clinically, structurally, financially, it's really, really hard to deliver care into the home. So we started Current Health to solve that and make it possible for any healthcare organization, be it a hospital, a pharmaceutical company, um, to shift 
some amount of their care out of hospitals and into the home. Uh, we started that in 2015. We uh, have built an incredibly successful business in both the United Kingdom and the United States. We work with eight of the top 20 largest health systems in the United States, as well as the five largest pharmaceutical companies. We are one of the market leaders in the care at home space now. And um, as you say, we were acquired by Best Buy at the end of 2021. So what instances, like what moment when caring back for your grandparents or grandmothers is that kind of lead you to think this is a gap that doesn't exist, that something that you can develop? Well, I think I remember distinctly on one of the occasions where it was decided she would have to go into hospital. She was being admitted to hospital for observation and she was being admitted to hospital for um, IV fluid. She was dehydrated. Um, she had a urinary tract infection and they wanted to provide IV antibiotics. Um, those were things clinically, I felt, certainly in her case, um, could have been delivered in the home. And, and my aunt, who was her primary caregiver, was a, a nurse and midwife. So there was clinical, you know, some level of clinical caregiving already there. Um, but the reasons why that, at that point anyway, that those aren't available is not really about clinical risk or um, is it appropriate even to deliver IV antibiotics or IV fluids in the home. It's just that there was no service to do that. You know, it, it was physically impossible to arrange for IV antibiotics or IV fluids to be done in the home. That, that, that just didn't exist. The only, um, at that point, the only place where uh, some level of in-home care would be done was for palliative care at the end of life. And that, to me, was a huge gap. You know, the NHS, this, this was in the UK, the NHS faces um, significant bed capacity challenges. They have long waits in the emergency room, like many of our US hospitals do. And as we now know from COVID, there is a large percentage of care that's being delivered in our hospitals that doesn't need to be there. And for me, it was, how can we build the technology and services that allow IV fluids, IV antibiotics, clinical oversight to be done safely in the home? And we've seen through COVID that that is possible. And now I'm you know, thrilled that this has become a, a de facto model of how care is delivered in the UK and US. So maybe this is a good way to, for you to share with us, like what does current health do? Yeah, so when we started out, our goal initially was, can we provide the window into the home? Um, so can we just be, um, it, it's super easy if a patient is 20 steps from the nursing station, really hard to understand how they're doing. Uh, really easy, sorry, to understand how they're doing. Um, if they're 20 miles from the nursing station, really hard to understand how they're doing. You know, there's no, how do you understand that patient's health when they're not physically in your building in front of you? So when we started out, um, our goal was for the sickest patient, can we do continuous monitoring of that patient in the home? Can we use that data to identify a patient who might be suffering some deterioration? Can we do that earlier? And then can we get that in front of a clinician as early and fast as possible? And our view was that if we could increase that visibility into the home, it would allow more patients to safely be managed in the home. Um, that model became what's now called hospital at home in the UK and US. Uh, 
what we then realized very quickly was a couple of things. Um, the first one was that in healthcare, one of the biggest challenges is actually how do you operationalize something? And all I mean by that is just um, lots of companies start and just want to do technology, but healthcare finds it really hard to actually implement technology. So we ended up having to build out all of the infrastructure and services around that piece of technology. So we had to do the logistics of how you get that equipment out into the home. We had to do all of the technical support, both for the patient and the clinician. We now provide our own clinical command center, which is nurses and physicians who do the clinical oversight of the patients in the home. Um, we have extended out all of the devices that we support because health systems don't want fragmentation of technology. They want as few vendors as possible. So we will now support any population with any kind of monitoring. Um, and then we also uh, support all of the orchestration of everything else that needs to be done in the home. So if someone like my grandmother needs IV fluids or IV antibiotics, we can arrange for that um, those fluids to be taken out to the home. We can arrange for a nurse or, or other specialists to come out and do that infusion. We provide kind of like a one-stop shop for that healthcare organization to do um, all of their care at home, with the exception of we, we don't really provide the end clinical care. That's what the hospital is already really good at. We're trying to let them focus on that and we'll do everything else. So does that mean you send home the patient uh, a monitoring system? Exactly. And then based on that information that you gather, that's when there's a lot of activities that you, in case the patients need IV for certain Correct. things exactly. that can be delivered. Exactly. And for anyone, whether that is someone who is um, has sepsis and is really sick to someone who's just got diabetes, like new onset diabetes, and actually we're looking at managing them long-term to stop them ever going into the hospital. Like you were saying earlier, oftentimes when you develop technology, people just oftentimes focus on the technology, but you provide a lot of the wrapped around services so that the monitor can be actionable. Exactly. And I think my biggest one of my biggest takeaways, I said this a minute ago, but when I meet founders now who come along and say, we're going to build this you know, piece of technology, the thing they always miss is that piece around how is it operationalized. And in healthcare, um, my experience certainly is that how it is actually implemented, all of the services around it, you cannot, the, the healthcare service, the healthcare organization, the hospital, it doesn't have the capability or the capacity to do other things. You know, they're already overloaded. So you, you have to basically be able to do everything to support that piece of technology to enable it to be adopted. And so help me understand. So like if I were a patient in this hospital and I got discharged, uh, I went to my doctor and then I go home and then they give me, prescribe me with this monitor. And that's when all the services just kicked in. Correct. And that, I mean, now with Best Buy, that means it could be a Geek Squad agent who brings it out to the home, a Geek Squad agent who makes sure you understand how to use it and does that education piece. And that's really important. Geek Squad are our engagers and activators. Um, it will be, in many cases, our nurses and doctors who are 24-7 available to you if you aren't feeling well or if we identify from that data we're collecting from you 
that something's going in the wrong direction. Um, if you have any technical problems or um, need assistance, it's our team that are supporting you. And we will often be the first line that if something is going wrong, we're in touch with you and we will decide with your doctor and nurse in the hospital what, what is the necessary course of action. And if it is, hey, we're going to give you antibiotics, then we're arranging for those antibiotics to be brought out to you. And that's what I mean by being that one-stop shop that makes it really easy and seamless for the hospital. And walk us through when, I imagine when you're first thinking about this idea, it's probably the monitoring and then the other piece maybe come later or you kind of think about it, all this grand plan. No, I certainly not. Like, trust me, I never um, know, I don't think any founder technology founder wants to end up building a ton of services like it's a really it's hard and complicated right um so no at the start i thought hey we're going to build this really simple you know just technology and it's going to be awesome uh but that's not healthcare and actually the ability to innovate in healthcare is dependent on your willingness to do hard things like that, that some people just aren't really willing to do so it was more just a case of listening to the client, you know, constantly listening to the client. What was halting adoption and being willing to build whatever we had to build to make adoption possible? And, you know, possibly naivety in that is a great thing. You know, at that point, we didn't really know it was that complicated to build out these things. So when our clients started saying, hey, we have no idea how we get this technology out to the home i thought well easy we'll we'll do the logistics that's not going to be hard <laughs> and that, you know it turns out it was really hard but that initial naivety you know makes you willing to throw yourself in and do things that perhaps other people aren't willing to do and um that ultimately was a big part of what led to the best buy acquisition best buy is world class at doing logistics and supply chain and has this phenomenal um across the threshold support capability in, in Geek Squad. And that was what really attracted me to the acquisition. Mm -hmm. So I imagine at that time when you're startup, you're nimble, you can do a lot of things. But I think also the fact you receive money from the investor and you have to convince your board that this is kind of staying true to the mission and the vision of the company. Yet you kind of bring it up as you go along, how, how's that conversation go? And how did you manage to convince them this is the right path? Um, I think convince is too strong a word. I, I don't think I ever felt at any point that our investors um, didn't fully support the direction I was taking the organization. Mm -hmm. um, I think certainly some of them were, were nervous about the level of complexity that the business was acquiring. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also objectively clear from client feedback from the growth rate, particularly, I mean, most of these services we stood up in 2020 over COVID. We, we got our FDA clearances in 2019. We only entered the market in 2020. Baptist Health in Kentucky was our very first uh, client. I, you know, I think it was objectively clear from the client feedback, from our revenue growth, from what we were seeing in the market that we didn't have a choice like we had to stand up and run these services if we wanted to be successful and our investors were not going to um 
you know, they were not going to stand in the way of that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, that you're based in the UK and it's a different system. And is this something, because you mentioned you got the FDA approval in 2019. And before then, have you tried in UK first before in the US? And that's, that's kind of your UK is your learning playground? Yeah, I, I think our initial view and that, that turned out not to be correct. But our initial view was that we will build our technology in the UK and we had to develop proprietary hardware for doing the monitoring. So we built our own little wearable device to do continuous monitoring. Um, that obviously took a bit of time. Hardware is really, really hard for lots of different reasons. Um, so we had to build out our own hardware. Um, the That took some time. We did all of our initial trials in the UK. We validated in the UK and we used a lot of that data as part of our FDA clearances. We got our initial customer in the UK within the National Health Service, a a little NHS trust just south of London. Um, And, you know, slowly uh, we um, built it up and got into the US market. But the US was always our initial goal. I would say, like, one of the things I'm proudest of is it's there's not many companies who start on you know, the, the West Coast of Scotland and managed to become a market leader in the United States. It, it's, that, that is relatively unusual. And, and our story is fairly improbable. You know, it, it's very improbable that we would now lead the market that we're in. But I think m- my view now is that that's down to, honestly, just sheer tenacity and determination and a constant responsiveness to the market. This podcast is sponsored by... Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so walk us through a little bit how the partnership with uh, Best Buy, you mentioned a little bit because of the, they're very strong in the logistic and the, the geek squad and how does that synergy work and how does that started and then get executed? Yeah, I mean, we had raised our Series B in um, April of 2021. So we raised $43 million. So we were, you know, I was totally focused on growth and building out current health. Um, but I think, you know, my my goal and mission has always been how do we make care at home accessible to as many people as possible? And I've been super open-minded about the best way to achieve that mission. And when we did our Series B, one of the things that we were struggling with was like care at home is a huge logistics problem. Um, are we really going to build this out ourselves? How do we partner to do it? Um, was lucky enough to meet the Best Buy team and listen a bit to how they were thinking about building out in healthcare. And, um, you know, we've seen CVS and Amazon and Walgreens all enter the healthcare space, but those organizations are all becoming healthcare providers. You know, they, they are, if you look at CVS, they've got the largest PBM in Caremark. They have a huge pharmacy operation. They now have a huge primary care operation. They're, they're becoming a, a provider. They have Aetna. Best Buy 
their view was, hey, listen, you know, we we are not coming becoming a provider. We want to be an enabler in the space and we want to use what we're world class at to help healthcare organizations deliver care into the home and in essence be the plumbing for care at home. And that really resonated with me. And as we um spoke and met, it was very clear that we shared common mission, a common purpose and common values. And actually it made more sense for us to come together and do this as one combined entity. And, you know, that led to the acquisition in November, 2021. In a way, at the same time, there's that logistic part, but there's also the part in the current health that they provide services because you bring in the services home based on what they need. And even how's that being part of the Best Buy help it scale? I mean, I think what, what what has been key to the acquisition has been how do we, I guess, supercharge things that we were already doing with what Best Buy does at national mm-hmm. scale. So we were starting to do in-home support, you know, technical support in a small number of markets at pretty small scale um, and in a fairly expensive, cost-intensive way. What Best Buy has helped us do is supercharge that and use Geek Squad and their capabilities and be able to do it in every market and be able to do it at a price point that would have been really difficult for us to do on our own. I think the other thing that has been really powerful is the Best Buy brand. You know, Best Buy is um it has extensive brand awareness among the consumer and really, really good brand loyalty. And a lot of healthcare organizations, they themselves are trying to um quote unquote, consumerize. And all that really means is just how does a healthcare organization become more accessible to their consumers? How, how do they make it easier for you to access the healthcare you need in the time and place you want? And a lot of them recognize that there might be learnings from Best Buy about how to be a better consumer-orientated organization. And bringing some of those learnings into our clients has been really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think a few years ago when somebody mentioned to me, I think I read it somewhere that Best Buy doing healthcare, I was just like, what? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, if you see Best Buy as a consumer electronics retailer, I, I understand why people might be confused, but Best Buy is not a consumer electronics retailer. But Best Buy's purpose um, is to enrich lives through technology and meaningful connections. Best Buy helps uh, to curate technology you find useful and it helps you to use and and see value in that technology actually um that's really not that dissimilar to what current health does you know we put the right technology into the home to make sure someone can get healthcare in the home and we make connections between that patient and their care team at the right time in the right place and that i think that that is where there's more shared alignment than I think initially meets the eye, especially if you just see Best Buy as a consumer electronics retailer and they're, they're really not just a consumer electronics retailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Sometimes you have certain, you know, what well, you're familiar with that because you're growing up with that. And, it's, and then when they make the shifts, you know, sometimes your brain's still stuck in the old brand. Well, I think you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting for me is you have, for example, a company like Amazon who, you know, now one of their biggest business units is Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services started because Amazon had spare server capacity and thought, hey, can we monetize this? 
nobody thinks it's strange now that Amazon does and is the largest data center organization on earth. I, I actually think this is very, you know, it's, it's in, a, in a way, is a similar concept. Best Buy has assets that are uniquely valuable in healthcare, like Geek Squad. And I think it's natural we would seek to deliver value in that space where we think we can uniquely play. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exciting. It's, I think it's, uh, I think definitely they have the the footprint that allow a lot of this activities to happen to, especially in a uh, less urban area. Because oftentimes yeah. they have fewer access to go to visit a doctor, even a hospital. It's not as convenient as people who live in the city. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I have found um, or have loved most about doing this it, is the care at home can really help improve equitable access for populations who traditionally haven't been able to get to healthcare. And uh, that's both rural populations, um, you know, where it's just super difficult and they have to drive four hours to get to the nearest hospital. But the the other thing is that, you know, if you are a single parent and you have to work two jobs, um, sometimes you have to make a difficult choice of, can I take a day off to go and access healthcare? Or, 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 and how am I going to get my kids taken care of? Can I actually get the day off work? And, it, you know, it, it's, um, I don't love that choice has to be made, but virtual care, care at home services, they can fit better into your daily lifestyle than this whole, we're bringing you to the clinic and you have to sit around for two hours to wait for your appointment. And that for me is is a superpower on this, that, that we're almost flipping the power back into the consumer or patient's hands and building it around their daily life. And I think the consumer has, um, some consumers I think have recognized through COVID where everything, a lot of things went virtual that it is possible to access health services virtually. So why on earth am I going to go back to waiting two hours in the primary care clinic for an appointment? I, I want what I had during COVID and I'm not giving that up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think somebody mentioned to me, this is before COVID, that healthcare is the only business that we allow our customer to wait for a long time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Um, Ultimately, the, the way healthcare has been organized is that we have very expensive resources, be it our physicians and nurses, or be it very expensive capital equipment like MRI machines and CT scanners. And the, the whole way we have set up our system and the whole way we finance our system is by centralizing around facilities where we bring patients to it. Uh, actually, if you went back 50 years, that didn't exist. You know, house calls were the common right. method with which healthcare was delivered. So... Um, I'm certainly not advocating that there should not be a hospital. I think there's always going to be a role for hospitals. Um, you know, patients are going to need um, intensive care units. You know, patients are going to need an MRI. Patients are going to need CT. I'm simply saying is there a percentage of care that is being delivered inside our hospitals today that doesn't need to be there? And I, I, to be honest, I don't think that's a question anymore. It's objective fact, and we've seen it through COVID. Mm -hmm. And a hospital is one third of our healthcare spending, which is already the highest in the world. So we have an opportunity through Care at Home to both reduce cost and, as we now know from the data, increase patient safety, increase patient outcomes, and increase patient experience. So that's awesome. We get to make it cheaper and make it better 
all at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think also the fact there's a lot of sh- labor shortages in a hospital setting. That also there's a lot of strain in terms of them uh, providing a lot of services that maybe does not need to be done in the hospital. I think that will make a huge change. I want to uh, discuss a little bit about your personal journey. And you mentioned that you you know you want to become a doctor, and then here you are, and um, your route is definitely unique in a way that I think. Uh, you didn't spend so much time in the school before you started the current health. Yeah. <laughs> and what are the things that you thought that that you learned during the, this journey that you did not know? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but what are the things that stood out that you feel like, I wish I knew that would make things a bit easier? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I don't know, a whole bunch of things. I mean, I think the first thing that I, I, I believe really strongly now is that a startup success is um, predominantly down to determination and tenacity. I mean, that, a, I'm making a massive generalization and there's many reasons why companies don't work, but there are so many different occasions where current health could have failed and not worked. And... Um, if we had given up, it would have. And actually, you know, if I look now at what we offer versus what we thought we were going to offer nearly 10 years ago, um, the core mission is the same, but how we got there is completely different. And um, our success, in, in my view, is is 100% down to um, tenacity and determination and a constant um, a constant feedback loop of learning, you know, how quickly can we hear something from the client and apply it back into the business and make a change and constantly do that all the time, every day, every hour. And that um, sheer like relentlessness almost, I think is, is the number one determinant of success now. Um, I really think the idea itself almost really doesn't matter. It's almost inconsequential because as you go out and test that idea, whatever it is, you're going to get feedback and suggestions and it's, it's about how you respond to that. Um, I think that the uh, second thing is that investment and fundraising and all this kind of stuff, like people look at investment as success and it's not. You know, Venture capital is a, is a financial product. And I have a unique appreciation for that now on the other side of an exit. Like, you know, VC is a product for people to put money at risk and hopefully get a better rate of return than they can with, you know, the, the public markets. And, um, you know, venture capital firms naturally want to market that product. And, and that's kind of created this thing with founders that amount of money raised is indicative of success and it's not revenue is indicative of success happy customers is indicative of success and i think the consequence of that is is we raised too much money too early and and that has a whole bunch of second order effects so i certainly you know now i would be much um uh, i'd be much more economic with with when we raise money and and uh, how much we raise and understanding really clearly what are the value inflection points you're trying to hit and and what capital do you need to get there? And only raising capital to truly enable that. But there's no doubt in my mind that venture capital has transformed our world, but 
it's a product that should be used in appropriate places. Not it's not it's not success in and of itself. Um, third thing is um, probably the the importance of team can't really be understated. But I think that a lot of founders jump to can we build a big team? And again, team size a bit like fundraising is a vanity metric. It's it's um, kind of irrelevant. And as team size increases, the business complexity increases. And you know, in many ways, I wish we had kept the team smaller for longer. It, it, I. You know, we are 300 people now. I, I don't believe we're 300 times more productive than we were when we had one person. You know, the, the productivity and number of employees don't increase linearly or exponentially in my experience. And I think there is, it, it surprises, it, will, it can surprise many people how much a very small team of people can get done. And, um, I would be much more focused now on keeping the team as small as possible for as long as possible and only adding people when it's it's absolutely necessary. Um, the last one is uh, probably like, you know, we, we were a very successful exporter from the UK and founders ask me all the time, you know, how, how did you manage to penetrate the United States market? And the answer is we just behaved like any company in the United States would, would behave, which is we would go and meet with health system executives wherever they would meet us. I would sit in their kitchen if they'd let me. I would, you know, I spent, um, in many years, I spent more than three quarters of the year in America on planes flying anywhere. And I met anyone in the healthcare service that would meet me. And you learn everything, you know, you learn a new thing in every single meeting. And 900 of those meetings didn't lead to a sale. One of them did. And that's all that matters to me uh, because 900 of them taught me something. So I think willingness to go and see the client and be with the client, and I think that's still true now in a post-COVID world, and sit with the client and learn from the client is everything. And I think that's real. I personally think that's very much the job of the CEO because you can't delegate out the um commercial or go-to-market of the product. Certainly not until you're at the point where you deeply understand why the market's buying, who the persona is that's buying, you know, what the value proposition and economic model is. You can't delegate that out. Um, in my experience, that just does not work. So you have to be the one that's going out and learning all of that. And, you know, once you do know that, then you can start building out a sales team. But we were only successful because I spent many years flying everywhere and meeting everyone I could that, that worked for who I thought was our customer. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope you get some uh, ginormous freaking miles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you got the vintage wine from one of those airlines because of your flight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all the, your uh, uh, advice and um, insight. I think a, a good work that you've, you've done and congratulations and I think it's really amazing to see the work that you do. I'm sure when you see how impactful that can be to a lot of people. I, I think ultimately the patient, um, the patient stories that we see have really made all of this worth it. I mean, I mean, we've had an amazing journey. I've loved, loved and still love every single minute of it. But ultimately, 
I know that there are patients who are here today only because of the work that our team has done and the technology we have provided, and that is awesome. Um, that is, you know, incredible to be able to be a part of, and it's incredible to be able to partner with some of this country's top health systems to help them deliver this. The other thing, though, is it, it's been awesome to see the impact on clinicians. You, you talked earlier about um, labour shortages, and our physicians and nurses, and my fiance is a physician, you know, they are really burnt out after COVID. You know, they had a really hard time and they're overworked and in many cases underpaid. And um, it's been really interesting to see how Care at Home changes their job. You know, there was a nurse that comes to mind who had been working in a field hospital over COVID, was really burnt out, was planning to leave the profession. And she ended up joining the hospital at home program at one of our clients. And suddenly she was able to go out into patient homes and spend an hour with them and their families. You know, you can't do that on the floor of the hospital. You get two minutes and then you get paged away. And she said, this is the type of care I've wanted to deliver my entire career. So it's not just the impact on the patient that changes, it's the impact on the clinician. They're getting to deliver the type of care that they always wanted and re-engage them with the profession. And I think that's super powerful. Too. Yeah, I think that that's important. And if we want to uh, keep them in the workforce, I think. 100%. Otherwise, they end up doing different things that not caring for yeah. patients, and we all lose when that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.